Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast series on impact, talking with entrepreneurs and organizational leaders who contribute to building a more cooperative and positive future. I'm Ursula York, the host of this series. I'm a mentor to business people who want to have a positive effect on the world around them, building strong businesses by creating value for their clients, team members, and the larger world. I am so passionate about sharing with you the stories of entrepreneurs and leaders who have impact. They're inspiring and energizing role models. I hope you use what you learn here to be inspired about what you can do in your business and beyond. For ongoing inspiration and support to get clear on your impact and put it into action, enter your name and email at workalchemy.com. Today's guest in this podcast series on impact is Sharon Salzberg. Born in New York City in 1952, Sharon experienced a childhood involving considerable loss and turmoil, an early realization of the power of meditation to overcome personal suffering determined her life direction. Her teaching and writing now communicates that power to a worldwide audience of practitioners. She offers non-sectarian retreat and study opportunities for participants from widely diverse backgrounds. After studying in India, Sharon returned to America in 1974 and began teaching Vipassana, insight meditation. Today, she leads intensive retreats worldwide, as well as a variety of non-residential programs, workshops, and classes. In 1976, she established, together with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield, the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, in Barrie, Massachusetts, which now ranks as one of the most prominent and active meditation centers in the Western world. Sharon and Joseph expanded their vision by co-founding the Barrie Center for Buddhist Studies and the Forest Refuge, a long-term retreat center. Sharon has also emerged as a featured speaker and teacher at a wide variety of events. She served as a panelist with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and leading scientist at the 2005 Mind and Life Investigating the Mind Conference in Washington, D.C. She has addressed audiences at the State of World Forum, the Peacemakers Conference, sharing a plenary panel with Nobel laureates, the Dalai Lama and Jose Ramos Horta, and has delivered keynotes at Tricycle's Buddhism in America conference, as well as Yoga Journal, Kripalu, and Omega conferences. The written word is central to Sharon's teaching and studies. She is the author of nine books, including Loving Kindness, the New York Times bestseller Real Happiness, and Real Happiness at Work. She is a weekly columnist for On Being, a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, and was a contributing editor of Oprah's O Magazine for several years. She's appeared in multiple publications, including Time Magazine, Yoga Journal, MSNBC.com, Tricycle, Real Simple, Good Housekeeping, Buddha Dharma, More, and Shambhala Sun, as well as on a variety of radio programs. I am so delighted to have you here on the podcast, Sharon. Welcome, and thank you again for being here. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And I, uh, I, one of the first thing I, I, things I wanted to ask you about is you've become such a highly respected mindfulness and meditation teacher, and 
you share what you've learned through many platforms, including your own website and uh, the, the writing that you do. Could you tell us more about what your work's focus is now and what it is that drew you to create this work? Well, I began my own meditation practice, shockingly enough, 45 years ago. <laughs> um, I just had my 45th anniversary of sitting and I, I was teaching in a place in New York City and I remembered that right in the middle of speaking and I said it and I saw the the owner of the, the studio go running out the door and I called out after him, are you getting me a cake? Which he was, you know, <laughs> oh, that's 45 great. years is an awesome and alarming number. Um, <laughs> but I went to India in 1970. I was a university student. Uh, it was kind of like my junior year abroad. I went through a university program. I went to India because I really wanted to learn how to meditate. I wasn't especially drawn, honestly, in all honesty, you know, to the philosophy or certainly not to a religious affiliation. But I wanted to learn if there were actually tools that I could use that anybody like me could use mm -hmm. um, to really get happier and, and more peaceful. And I had had a very kind of fragmented, chaotic childhood and, and I was 18 and junior, about to be a junior in college. And um, the university accepted the project and off I went. So uh, I ended up, I stayed a little longer than my year. I came back from <laughs> school, went back to India, and I finally came back in 1974 as a teacher because my own teacher had told me to teach. So that's really like the old fashioned way, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's almost like an apprenticeship model, except there was no apprenticeship really in right. terms of, of skill of teaching. But you know, there, was, there were a small number of us, each of whom had been asked by our teachers to lead retreats or to teach tools of mindfulness in this country. And, and they themselves, all of our teachers, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield are the others I'm talking about, uh, Jack studied in Thailand while Joseph and I were in India. And um, all of those teachers were very non-sectarian. They were kind of cradled in the Buddhist tradition some of them were uh, ordained in the Buddhist tradition, but every one of them was very committed to these methodologies being completely inclusive and open and available to anybody. And, you know, every one of them said, you don't have to even talk about Buddhism. You don't have to lay that particular um, languaging upon this. And so I think that conditioning was, was very strong for each of us. And, and when we started teaching in this country, it was, it was really in the form that we were most accustomed to, which was intensive immersive retreats, where people would leave home for seven days or 10 days or longer and um, just do the practice with guidance and, uh, you know, kind of perspective taking on, on one's experience. And, and um, for a long time, that was pretty much the only form. And it was in that spirit that we started the Insight Meditation Society, which has its own alarming number. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Every once in a while, uh, listening to your introduction, every once in a while somebody says to me, you're really like an entrepreneur. And I think, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, successful institution 40 years later. Yeah. Um, you know, in these days, uh, partly because of the much more widespread interest in tools like mindfulness and uh, the research, the science, all kinds of things. Um, 
the form has also shifted a lot. People are encountering mindfulness programs that are not residential, where you don't have to leave home. There's there are classes, there are day-longs, there are workshops. People have workplace programs or um, school programs. And, and so it, it's really a kind of uh, amazing transformation of expression and modes of expression. And it's a very creative time. Yeah, I was surprised at, at the conference where I met you, which is Wisdom 2.0 in San Francisco. I was really amazed at how mainstream, at least in that forum, the that mindfulness and mindfulness practice is in businesses that you wouldn't necessarily connect with that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of startling. And, you know, so I was, I was so young, I was young when I came back as a teacher and, uh, you know, there's a little bit of my mind that still identifies with being kind of countercultural, you know, and, and I, you know, in some ways, I often say when I would come back, when I first came back and I'd be at a party or some social situation and somebody would say to me, what do you do? And I'd say, I teach meditation. They would often go, oh, that's a little weird. <laughs> you know. Well, and it's teachers like you that have brought this into the mainstream. I mean, you've played a big role in, in making that something that people find I mean, the response is, oh, wow. now the response is, oh, wow, that's cool. Or, yeah, tell me more about that. Or do you yeah, find that's I, the case? Oh, certainly. And, and the, the most common response is I'm so stressed out. I could use some of that. Right, right. Yeah. Do you feel that um, that is one of the ways that you have impact in this work that you do? Or do you see your impact differently? Is it? Is it, I know that meditation is not necessarily about de-stressing, although that's kind of a side effect, but what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that um, there are always issues, I, I imagine in any endeavor, between um, having a kind of smaller bandwidth of influence with more highly trained instructors and more experienced instructors, and in contrast to really scaling up you know, and having a much larger impact on a wider variety of people, which might necessarily mean you have less highly trained instructors and um, people who have different degrees and levels of experience before they themselves are training others. And mm -hmm. that's also one of the great dilemmas of our time. And there's no right answer, right? you know, uh, particularly, but I'm sort of of the... Um, I'm one of the people uh, who I did have a very kind of classical training and, and obviously I've been meditating for 45 years, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I've had a lot of training and, uh, and yet I often kind of am bringing out the practices to new frontiers, you know? Um, In what but, ways? Well, for example, I was, part of um, this is place the Garrison Institute in Garrison New York and as part of a four-year program where we were bringing the tools of mindfulness of meditation and yoga to frontline domestic violence shelter workers oh, wow. and it was really kind of a um, it was an exploration of vicarious trauma and you know people who were working really on the front lines of suffering and themselves absorbing a lot of trauma and seeing if those tools 
could be helpful, and they were extremely helpful, and it was a beautiful experience. That practice, that program has now morphed into uh, working with international humanitarian aid workers. Mm. You know, so um, I am inspired and moved and challenged by bringing out uh, these very tools to a wider and wider variety of people. I, you know, I have personal conviction that our society really rests on the dedicated work of, you know, first responders and uh, entrepreneurs and, you know, all kinds of people who are stepping off into the unknown and um, or dealing, you know, very um, rigorously, you know, in a very direct way with other people's pain or difficulty. And, and I feel a, a great conviction that I, you know, can play a role there with these tools. And so uh, many times, um, you know, people who have my kind of training or my kind of background uh, work with people more, um, again, it's like in the immersive retreat model, you know, and um, a very uh, well, much narrower band of people who are able to leave home and leave work and mm -hmm. um, have that other kind of intensive experience. As opposed to you going to them in the case of right. the, yeah, the garrison right. work. Right. Yeah. yeah, right. What do you feel makes what you do unique or, or what, what is it about the way that you teach that's unique? Because there are many meditation teachers and yet what you do seems to really resonate with so many people. Mm. And I'm really interested to hear what, what you feel that is about. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I have a friend who said she, she prepared endlessly for a presentation once and this, the two comments she received the most as compliments afterwards were, I'm glad you're so human and I'm glad you're a woman. She said were the two things she didn't have to prepare. Um, <laughs> so sometimes I feel it's kind of like that, you know. <laughs> um, I think, you know, because I have had such extensive experience and I've gone through so much in my own life, um, I think I have a very, I'm um, obviously not the only one, but I, I think I have a very um, deep understanding of the kinds of problems people get into pursuing these things and ways that, especially ways that we bring old habits of self-judgment and so on into our, our practice. So, for example, I'm really known for anybody who sat with me more than once for encouraging the development of greater concentration and focus, not through trying to squeeze your attention down and getting really fierce, but through the ability to let go of what's distracted you and, and begin again, you know, bring your attention back to whatever your meditation object is. And, mm -hmm. and so that's why I teach meditation as a kind of resilience skill. Because that ability to begin again, you know, it's something we need. It's a huge life skill that comes into play at work. And when we're um, starting something or trying to make progress in something or trying to make change, the thing I say now in my, in my age in, about life is that I think nothing is a straight shot. <laughs> that, you know, we go forward, we fall down, we have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up we have to go forward again, or we have a huge aspiration and we forget it. 
and we have to be reminded and then we go forward again and you know i think that's almost like the rhythm of life and especially in endeavor you know you're trying to do something and and i think meditation is a training precisely in that and so i don't know that many meditation teachers who emphasize that moment of beginning again as much as i do um things like that i love that um talking that you're talking about resilience skills and and continuing to go back and begin again i think that is so important it's a huge life skill absolutely and because we all have things that come up for us and and how do you respond to it and we all have to kind of just begin again and it's it's a huge skill for entrepreneurs because we often run up against obstacles or you try something and it doesn't work and it can be easy to get discouraged so um yeah i'm really uh, i i i think that's an amazing aspect of mindfulness that you teach is that returning again and just it's not starting over exactly would you characterize it like that uh well something i just said beginning again okay you know? yeah yeah okay you mentioned your your personal experiences and and um how do you feel that those have informed your work how, I mean, other than drawing you to it in the first place are there other ways that you think your work's been informed by that experience i think so because i think first of all um uh you know, I, I feel like, even though, you know, at the time I never would have said this or, or believed it, it, you know, those experiences of loss and conflict and change and so on really did help build a basis of compassion in me. Mm. And uh, even ultimately compassion for myself. And one of the things going back to beginning again, you know, I would say is that the kind of secret ingredient in being able to begin again or have resilience is a kind of self-compassion where, you know, you see maybe your own jealousy or greed or, or confusion. And instead of calling those things bad or wrong or terrible, you realize those are states of suffering. You see, you've gotten tremendously distracted and rather than spending a year and a half blaming yourself for it and calling yourself a failure, you can have more kindness towards yourself and begin again. And so, I, I think without some of the things I myself went through, and I think it would have been a harder row for that much self-compassion to, to arise. And, and that does become the, you know, it's like a mutual, mutual reinforcement, compassion for oneself and compassion for, for others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. What impact do you feel mindfulness and the work that you're doing in this realm has on the larger world. I know you've been involved in some major international forums and uh, talked with people on a really high level. What what impact do you see or do you feel is is happening in the world as a result of more focus on mindfulness? Well, one of the things, interestingly enough, um, in terms of that garrison program, mm -hmm. uh, we started and we were our effort was really to work with frontline um, workers and they apparently went through so many changes that their directors and supervisors came to us and said, well, we'd like a program too. Hmm. And so uh, we started a parallel track for directors and supervisors and people, um, 
when they had, you know, there, there were enough, say, shelter directors who'd done that program, they came up with a phrase they coined themselves, which was saying they wanted each of them to establish at work a culture of wellness. And, and that became kind of an overriding principle, a culture of wellness. And for each workplace, it could be different. And the domain, you know, the extent of the culture could be your body, could be your body and mind, could be your desk, could be your entire workplace, whatever. And um, I began to see people trying to implement that. And I think that's the kind of shift, you know, sometimes if I go into a, a company or an organization, uh, one of the questions I ask is, how many other people need to be doing their job well for you to be able to do your job well? Oh, what a great question. You know, and, and for people, you can just see people light up, you know, they don't resent thinking about that. It's it's uh, <clears throat> it's an understanding like, wow, we are part of a little interconnected web here, you know? Yeah. This is a team, in fact. <laughs> and And so... Um, I think that's part of a culture of wellness is having a very different sense of we and mutual respect for the work everybody does. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which it, I think, begins to transform little modules of society uh, as, as people pursue it. And so, you know, we see it in organizations, we see it certainly in um groups that are working really, you know, in such difficult circumstances, like hospice nurses and um, those first responders and so on. And and I think there's also, you know, there's such a big movement uh, these days for mindfulness for children. And uh, it's really interesting. I saw a news clip, I think it was Ohio, uh, this little girl, she was maybe five years old, and she said, Mindfulness is the best thing in my life so far. <laughs> and I thought, wow, mine too. You know? <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, um, I, one of the things I thought of as, as um, I was hearing you talk about that is, first of all, what amazing work you're doing with people that uh, whose work I think is also amazing, which is, uh, just being in those very difficult situations and, and you supporting them in that is huge. And I also thought of uh, something I saw on Facebook a while ago about, um, is it a thousand or 10,000 monks in Thailand doing a mindfulness exercise? Have you heard about that? Were there, no. They're all... It would certainly be more than a thousand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they set aside a specific time period where there was a focus on uh, on mindfulness and, and them sitting for that particular time period and this mm -hmm. huge number all at once. So I, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure that ripples out as well. So, yeah. One of the things that I've been asking people about in these interviews is how, how do you feel that your impact is informed by your values? How is it a reflection of those values? And, and in what ways have you brought those beliefs and values into the work that you do? And um, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not expecting a particular response. I don't know if you even see it that way, but I'd, I'd love to hear what your perspectives are on that. You mean my innermost values? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, well, I think that too, you know, like um, one of the great gifts meditation first gave me was 
I mean, it's just the value of introspection of any kind. It doesn't really need to be done through meditation. But for me, you know, I was 18 and that was the mode that I was first given of a very kind of honest but kind introspection. And I discovered my values. Um, you know, I, I discovered the things that actually made me happy, not the things I'd been taught would make me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered the power of kindness. I often think of kindness or compassion. Uh, many of us have a conditioning that these qualities are sort of like secondary virtues. You know, if you can't be brilliant, you can't be courageous, and you can't be wonderful, it's like, okay, be kind. You know, it's nice. <laughs> it's not great, but it's good. And, but it is of greatness. I think if you, you know, people think about, think back to somebody who mentored them or, you know, really helped them, uh, we don't think, oh, the poor fool, you know, I pulled one over on them. Right. Uh, it's tremendous respect and appreciation and when someone has been kind to us. And so I saw the power in those things just from looking more directly. And the things that I maybe had been taught would make me strong and um, would help me go on in life, uh, you know, vengefulness or whatever. Uh, you know, not giving in. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's really holding on, you know, to something that's kind of old and mm-hmm. and maybe doesn't have to be so relevant in my life anymore. Mm. Um, you know, so it, it was really a very direct looking that helped me really understand for myself. And then I could bring forth those, those sensibilities. And, um, remembering to pay attention is maybe the foremost of them because all of meditation is attention training. And so it's really based on a belief that attention is a, a malleable, flexible um, strength that can, can be molded and changed and unified and heightened and all those things. And so uh, realizing I mean, it could be as simple as realizing how little I'm listening to somebody Hmm. when they're talking because I'm thinking about my email and, you know, all the things we think about (laughs) instead and and realizing that in a moment and having just cultivated the skill of letting go and beginning again, like gathering my attention and saying, it doesn't matter if I never see this person again. You know, my commitment is to be present when people are talking to me, you know. Yeah, uh, and then just bringing that forth. I love what you said about kindness and compassion not being a secondary, nice to have, uh, kind of a second tier kind of value or characteristic. I, um, I think it's incredibly valuable. It's it's something I value really highly, and there's a there's a softening that happens in people when they receive kindness or compassion or when when you uh, reflect that to yourself that opens things in a way that um, you know the, the that other characteristics or, or values don't always so I, I think there's a huge benefit in showing kindness and compassion because then we all open to more potential in ourselves and in what's happening in a particular situation and um yeah it's uh i think it's huge so thank you for sharing that perspective do you do you do you 
agree with the fact that it's kind of has a kind of softening effect or do you experience it another way? Oh, no, I think absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, there's a kind of gentleness and uh, and even, you know, I think a kind of patience mm. that comes because you see one sees one's own changes and and you realize that, um, you know, the efforts you're making maybe to get something done or seek change, they may not happen immediately. Right. But that doesn't mean all effort is wasted. You know, things also happen in their own time. Yeah. Yeah. Are there um, ways that this desire to um, to do this work and to have this kind of impact, is it, is it something that you went to India with? I mean, you were drawn to it in the first place, so I'm, I'm curious about um, whether that's something that was kind of in you and then the your teacher telling you that you should be a teacher, how that landed and, and how that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I would say I went to India uh, really in a completely personal quest um, for some happiness. Uh-huh. And uh, I, you know, I was just a, like a junior in college. I went to college when I was 16, so I was 18. I was a junior. And, um, you know, it was like I, I didn't see beyond just learning some techniques. And mm-hmm. um, and then because it was so compelling and, I, you know, I came back and finished school, I went back to India. And uh, when I was leaving in 1974 to come back to the States for what I was convinced would be a very short trip uh, before I went back to India for the rest of my life, I went to see one of my teachers who was a woman uh, named Deepama, which is sort of a nickname, like Deepa's mother, mm-hmm. um, who lived in Calcutta. And uh, I went to see her to say goodbye and just get her you know, blessing for my short trip home. And uh, she'd been a very, very important figure for me because she had had tremendous personal suffering in her life. She uh, lost two children. She mm-hmm. lost her husband. She had one daughter left, Deepa. Um, and uh, she was actually living in Burma by the time her husband died. And uh, he'd been in the civil service there. And, and uh, she was completely grief-stricken. She just took to bed. She developed a heart condition and went to bed. And the doctor came and said to her, you're actually going to die of a broken heart. Unless wow. you do something about your mind, you should learn how to meditate. Mm-hmm. So she got out of bed, and she still had Deepa to raise, and she got out of bed and uh, went to the retreat center to learn how to meditate. And when she emerged, she um, she was just this tremendous light of compassion. Like, I saw her with so many kinds of people, and I never saw her, like, reject anyone outright as not worth it or not worth her attention or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she had somehow metabolized all of that pain and suffering, into compassion and uh she was a huge huge model for, she was a tiny person but she was a huge model for me um and extremely important so um i went to say goodbye to her and uh my friend joseph Gosling, whom i'd met in india had already come back he'd, he'd been back for about six months and deepama said to me when you go back to the states you're going to be teaching meditation with joseph and i said no i won't she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And I mean, it was ludicrous in my mind. And and then she said two things that were really important. The first was 
she said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. Mm. And it was the first time I'd ever considered uh, the kind of personal difficulties that I'd gone through as something that could help me help others. Ever. I just never thought of it that way. And then she said to me, you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking you can't do it that's going to stop you. Mm-hmm. And I left her her little room in Calcutta thinking, no, I won't. And I came back to the States and uh, just through a series of circumstances, um, I was uh, with Joseph in, in Boulder, Colorado, where, where he moved to temporarily to begin teaching. And then we got invited to lead a retreat together. And then we got invited to another retreat together and then slowly over time uh, I suddenly realized oh yes I'm actually not living in India anymore that my life is really here and and she was totally right Wow that uh, what you said about her having metabolized pain and suffering I mean that so speaks to how she was able to transform those experiences and become a light literally for so many people and certainly for you yeah definitely yeah I, and that phrase about you really understand suffering you know that's that's very powerful because yeah. you can connect with people on a very deep level that doesn't always require words but people yeah. sense that so yeah, yeah it's amazing I, you know, when I recounted, I think, well, she never said you have such enormous realization or right. your study has been so profound. <laughs> Brilliant <laughs> yeah. insights. And... Right, that's right. <laughs> something else altogether. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, this is something I've also started asking people, too, that um, what we do in the world can draw so much of our energy and attention, and it can be very tempting to in a way, almost set yourself aside as, in service of that, even when you're practicing something as, as fundamental as mindfulness. But is do you feel that your own self-care affects your ability to have impact? And, and do you have a particular self-care practice that feels really important or sacred to you that you maintain no matter what? Oh, I think it's essential. I mean, just the amount of travel, you know, that I do is mm-hmm. ruling. And every year I say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. Right. It's like every year I say, I'm not going to spend the winter on the East Coast. And every year I do. <laughs> um, but uh, I do practice every day. I meditate every day, um, which I think is crucial, crucial. Uh, I have a little cyber support group. There's just five people. It started when a friend of mine said if he woke up in the morning and he turned right, he was at his computer. If he turned left, he was at his meditation cushion. Uh-huh. So we formed this little support group uh, where each day when we've meditated, and you don't have to disclose anything, whether it was two minutes or you know two hours, but when, once you've meditated, you send an email to the other four, and the subject line is always turned left. <laughs> and if you want, you add, you know, in Brooklyn and Massachusetts, where I am now, and uh, whatever, or you don't have to add anything. It's really the subject line that's the check-in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's been usually supportive, just to realize that oh, other people kind of counting on me doing this too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, am happy to note that I've scheduled in like three sort of retreat times for myself. 
um, in this calendar year. Uh, that seems really important. I don't go on vacations. People ask me that, like, oh, did you go to Hawaii on vacation or did you go to Miami on vacation, wherever? And I say, no, I, my idea of a vacation is not getting on an airplane. <laughs> you know, so right. I don't think I have quite enough of those times scheduled in mm -hmm. where I'm just home. Um, you know, I'm in Massachusetts now really to do my taxes, which is not exactly just being, you yeah, know. Not a rip-roaring time. Right. <laughs> but I, I think I need to really look at the, that calendar and, and say, okay, this is going to be like unscheduled time. Mm. Do you see your retreat chimes as sort of vacation, or is that is it more in, in, of an intensive experience for you? Mostly the vacation, sort of, yeah. 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 Well, you're not leading it. You're, you're part right. of it, yeah. That's right. Kind of a break. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, are there, um, and, and this is a, almost a moot question, but there are, are there obstacles or barriers that you run across in having the impact that you want to have? And I'm assuming the answer is yes, but um, how did you address those? How did you, or, or if there's one that you, you'd care to share a little bit about, how did you move through that so, so that you were able to have the impact that you wanted to have? Well, I mean, I think it's taken, um, you know, it's taken a lot of years, I think, to have perspective. It's, it's, uh, maybe it wouldn't have to take everyone, you know, so many years, but um, I, I think it is, has largely been a matter of perspective. You know, I wrote a book called Faith, which was the story of my own faith journey. So it was extremely personal. It is extremely personal. It was excruciating to write um, and also important for me to write, you know, and um, and I wouldn't say it was like earth shaking, you know, in terms of how many people read it or uh, or whatever. So that was a kind of impact that on one level was not really fully realized by any means. But, you know, the amount of people um, come up to me and just say, oh, I had a childhood like yours or I understand or that book came to me in my most difficult hour. Mm, wow. Uh, you know, and so I have to recalibrate and say, if one person comes up to me and says that, that's enough. That's the number I really need, yeah. not, the, not the number of sales, you know, um, things like that, which I think we're always doing. You know, if you lead a retreat and, uh, you know, there's 60 people there, 200 people there, and it may just be three people who don't take it casually, you know, who, who really say, I'm going to explore this in a real way. Um, and, it, you know, it takes, sometimes it takes a community. It's like people who do share those values and remind you that's what's important. That's what's really fulfilling. That's what's a meaningful contribution. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a community. Sometimes it's your own perspective taking and I just think I'm very lucky in that I do often have that one person come up and I can, I can remember, you know, that that's my deepest value is, it's just that kind of impact. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's a powerful way to look at it to just uh, impact one person at a time and yeah, yeah. 
And you, you, you know that if one or two or three people came up and said that to you, there are probably a lot more who were affected yeah, yeah. just That's haven't true. come up. Yeah. Well, are there any insights or advice that you would share with uh, a fellow entrepreneur, since I can call you an entrepreneur now? <laughs> <who's... laughs> I made that association just now. Um, you know, I, I look back at that time 40 years ago when we started the Retreat Center, the, Retreat, the Insight Meditation Society, mm -hmm. and uh, it was such an interesting time because we actually had no models. Um, each of us, Jack Cornfield, had studied in Thailand, Joseph and I in India, so uh, we had a very Asian-centric um, training. Mm -hmm. and uh, Which Asian... most, most people did. I mean, that yeah. was where yeah, the yeah. whole concept came from, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And so the Asian, at least the Asian sort of spiritual pedagogy is all about repetition. You just hear the same thing again and again and again and again. And Westerners seem a little impatient for that, you know. Right. Or, uh, you know, the um, iconography that, you know, we would always be surrounded by Buddha statues, which were not considered works of art. They were a Buddha statue. Um, in the tradition is a reminder of, of a human being who fully realized their potential. Mm -hmm. And so can we. Mm -hmm. So you look at a Buddha statue and you see something about yourself. So it's not meant to be, you know, an idol or somebody like that. But mm -hmm. um, at the same time, you know, there's a, there's an etiquette, like Buddha statues are treated with respect. Um, you know, they're often bowed to or because you're bowing to something inside yourself or you, you don't wear your shoes around them, you would never have like a Buddha ashtray or whatever it is we have here. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so here we were in this brave new world with, with certain kinds of backgrounds. We had no idea what to do here. You know, new culture, new form. We were the first group of Westerners establishing a, a retreat center in the West. Uh, we were the first group of Westerners establishing a retreat center that didn't have a singular Asian uh, master, man, mm -hmm. master, right. uh, you know, as the leader, even if they never came, um, you know, and, and everything was new. And uh, so I think about that in the entrepreneurial spirit now. We had to discuss everything. Uh, the building we bought was a Catholic novitiate, and it was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and that's what it said up above the doorway, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. <laughs> uh, we got someone to get up on a very tall ladder, and we said, could you rearrange those letters so it says something about us? Mm. Um, and they did, and they came up with this word in Pali, which is the language of the original Buddhist text. The word is metta, M-A-T-T-A, mm -hmm. loving kindness or love. Right. And then we had to debate that forever. <laughs> you know, like, we, why do we have a word no one understands up there? You know, that makes no sense. We're not in Asia anymore. We're in we're Massachusetts. Right. And, you know, we went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the point of view that the word should stay up there prevailed, which I was very happy about because it was my point of view. I just like it. You know, when someone calls for directions and, whoever answers the phone says it's a large brick building with white pillars. It's got this word up on top, meta. <laughs> and they say, what does that mean? Right. You get to say that means love or that means friendship, something like that, you know, but 
I think of that period where we we it was boundless and uncertain and we relied on one another for a kind of group wisdom to arise or or maybe you just gave in sometimes you know because we were discussing everything but uh, it was such an extraordinary time of creativity um, that uh, I think we don't look back on that enough because now of course we have policies and procedures and you know a 40-year history and right and so on but that was a pretty incredible time I love that combination of words you used, boundless and uncertain, which really characterizes the the start of an enterprise, whatever it is. And hopefully you continue some spirit of that into the later stages as well, because that it really lets you tap into a lot of creativity. And I, I know you've done that. Yeah, well, we're still here and we're not, you know, yeah. hide bound. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for sharing that. I, uh, I'm just thinking of all the things you've talked about today, like the, that whole realm of resilience and beginning again and, um, all the work that you're doing and how it's, it's impacting not even just the people that you're in direct connection with, but how that's rippling out into organizations and the larger world. I just, um, I'm, very grateful for the work that you do. And um, I think it has a huge impact on the world. So thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you so much. So if if people would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, well, my website is SharonSalzberg.com and, and uh, there's several email addresses on that website. Okay. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you again for being here today. It's been a really great pleasure and um, an honor to have you here. And I I know it'll be an amazing um, interview for people to listen to. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Join us for more podcasts on impact. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast channel on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. Until next time, to keep that positive flow of energy going in your business so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by entering your name and email at workalchemy.com.